The rest of us are going to continue our study of Luke chapter 5, which is actually our study of Jesus, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. So if you have a Bible, you can find Luke 5. And I'm going to ask you to join me in praying once again. Our Lord, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity to sit at your feet, as it were, and learn from you as we open your word together. And Lord, like the psalmist, our request is that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things. Help us, assist us, so that we might think rightly, so that we might worship appropriately. And we would ask that you would do this for our benefit and for your greater glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can call Jesus narrow. You can call Jesus dogmatic. But to call Jesus irrational seems, well, rather irrational. It's true, Jesus is narrow. He even speaks of the narrow way in Matthew 7. It's true, Jesus is dogmatic, sort of goes with the territory when you're God, what you say is right and true. Um, it's just kind of how it goes. But to say he's irrational is irrational. In fact, he was the king at being reasonable. Everything he said made sense. In fact, he was the king at coming to people who were being irrational and helping them to think rationally, to think the right way. And we, we find this at the end of Luke chapter 5, which is where, where we'll be this morning. We have a splendid uh, display of Jesus in love because of kindness and grace, helping to show the irrationality of not believing in him. So we're in Luke 5 this morning. If you're just joining us, you've come at a great time because we're still early in our studies. Uh, Jesus is still early in his earthly ministry. He's not, he's not um, in Jerusalem. He's not in the city. He's still out in the country regions. He's in the region of Galilee. And by now, we've seen him doing, do amazing things. We've seen Jesus um, heal people in ways that medical doctors like Dr. Luke couldn't do. It was supernatural. We've seen Jesus say that he has the power to forgive sin, something only God can do, and he substantiated or he supported his claim with doing the supernatural. We've seen Jesus show how time and time again show how he is the one who was anticipated, the one who was promised, the one who was the Messiah, the one who would come and deliver people, his people from bondage, to deliver them from sin, to set them free spiritually. We've seen him teach in a way that, that was mesmerizing, teach in such a way that it was like no one else. People would hear Jesus, we've seen this happen, he, we, he would, they would hear him speak, and, and he was on such a different level from their very favorite speakers that they said, Jesus speaks differently as one having authority, meaning he wasn't quoting other people, he was just opening the Bible and explaining it in such a way that was so amazing and so clear that he stood apart. But having seen all these things, the tensions are rising. The tensions are rising because the religious establishment in view so far would be the right-wingers, the Pharisees and the scribes. 
they're feeling threatened. Their power base is being challenged. And so the tension is escalating. And we're going to see that this morning. Later on, he'll deal with the left-wingers. He'll deal with the Sadducees. But so far right now, it's the conservatives who are feeling threatened. And that's what we're going to see here. And we're going to have him graciously show us the unreasonableness of unbelief. And I trust we're going to be impressed. And I trust we're going to want to worship him even more so because of what he says here. Let's jump right in. Verse 33 comes a question. It says in verse 33, And they said to him, they said to Jesus, The disciples of John, that would be John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples or the followers of the Pharisees. But yours, your disciples, eat and drink. And the they would be referring in the immediate context to the Pharisees, the Pharisee crowd, uh, their people. But Matthew's gospel would also help us to understand that they're not the only ones who are saying, why doesn't Jesus fast? John the Baptist's followers are in on this too. Why, do, why doesn't Jesus fast? Why doesn't he go without? What's going on here? And if you recall, and if you don't, I'll help you remember, just before this, we have Jesus going to Matthew, who's a tax collector, and you know, the stereotypical bad guy sinner, the kind of person you don't hang out with, you don't want to be seen with. We had Jesus calling Matthew to himself, forgiving Matthew as Jesus has the power to do. And then Jesus goes to Matthew's house for a big party with other sinners. Matthew's thrilled because he's experienced the saving forgiveness of Jesus. He wants all of his friends to hear. He has a big party. Jesus goes and Jesus goes to the party. That's a far cry from fasting. You're with the wrong crowd and you're not going without. In fact, you're having a great time and you're part of feasting, not fasting. And so they're saying, what is with this Jesus? He's not like John the Baptist's followers. He's not like the Pharisees' followers. He's not fasting. That's the immediate problem. Fasting. And we have to understand something of this, if we understand, uh, something of, of what the Jews were into in the day to understand just what a big deal it is. Fasting is super important. It shows devotion to God. It's an act of worship. And if you're not fasting then you must not really love God. You certainly couldn't be the anointed one, the Messiah sent from God to save his people from their sins if you're not fasting. You're you're not showing yourself to be a true Jew. Let's think just for a few minutes about fasting. Three things I want you to know about fasting that will at least help you be brought up to speed. Three different kinds of fasting. There's mandated fasts in the Bible. Okay, In the book of Leviticus, there's the mandated fast celebrating what's called the Day of Atonement. On your calendar, it comes up Yom Kippur. And you say, what is that? It means Day of Atonement. It's when the Jewish people um, commemorated, celebrated the historic act of God passing over and not bringing death. He brought pardon. Okay, Passover is crucial for the Jewish people. There's a fast associated with it, according to Leviticus 16. Uh, there are other fasts that are mandated, these number one kinds of fasts, like um, uh, commemorating the destruction of Jerusalem, Zechariah 7, Zechariah 8. Okay, so number one, there are biblically mandated fasts. Jesus would have done those. Jesus would have kept the law, 
as a Jew, and the law required fasting. Okay? There's another kind of fast in the Bible. It's not mandated, it's described. And it's associated with trying circumstances. It's associated with grieving the the loss of a loved one. Maybe some major kind of decision, some kind of crisis going on. And we definitely have that second kind of fast described in the Bible. They're not mandated per se, but they are described. So there's two kinds of biblical fasting that we would want to make sure we understand. And then there's a third kind of fast that's not in the Bible. And that's what's in view here. The third kind of fast that's not in the Bible, and that would be the fast according to sacred tradition. The fast that the Pharisees had come up with. This is an extra biblical kind of fast that has been mandated upon people who are the Jewish people, uh, the ordinary people like you and like me who name the name of God. And it says if you are true and genuine and faithful and loyal, one of the ways you prove it is by going without food when we say. According to extra-biblical history, this higher standard sacred tradition that the Pharisees were employing now was twice a week. It was on Mondays and Thursdays. Maybe they had more, but we at least have some historical evidence that they had these mandated fasts that weren't biblical fasts, but they were required and treated as if they were biblical by the religious authorities. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Back to verse 33. Notice the contrast. It says, yours eat and drink. They're, they're, they're partying. They're having a grand old time. You, your disciples, and it's another way of saying you, Jesus, but it's kind of a sly way of doing it. Their big problem isn't with the disciples. The big problem is with Jesus. But, but, but we fast. We show our loyalty and our devotion to God even by doing uh, extraordinary stuff that's not even in the Bible. And, and we do this, but yours eat and drink. Scandalous. Not to mention the Matthew thing. Scandalous. You don't follow our traditions. Like in Fiddler on the Roof famous musical i watched it again yesterday tradition is what they do you should watch it today it'll be stuck in your head i walked around the house tradition my little boys are even saying tradition you don't know why i want to rent it i want to have it sent next on netflix to watch now that i told you you'll want to and now no none of us will be able to get it on time it's so interesting in that opening scene i think it's the opening scene But it's so interesting, and it's well done, and the guy's singing, this Jewish guy, and he talks about, how do we know what our God expects? How do we know how how to have a relationship with our God? I'm paraphrasing. And he says, we know our God, we know what to do to please our God according to our traditions. Think about it. Tradition, right? That's what's going on here. That's That's the offense. They know their God and they tell the people how to know God according to their traditions and Jesus isn't keeping their traditions and so they have a major problem with Jesus. Who does he think he is? Not to mention the fact they're happy which would be associated with not fasting, eating and drinking which is kind of another angle at looking in things. These religious leaders have an underlying assumption that godliness and sadliness, to make up a word, are on the same plane. 
And I realize we are not living in the first century and we're not this immediate audience. But when you think about human nature, it pretty much stays the same. And today we have people that would think that somehow, um, you know, being a sourpuss uh, all of the time is what shows godliness. Sad and mad shows you know who God is and you're extra spiritual. And joy, the joy that the Lord would provide, even joy would be a pagan virtue. That's how they're seeing Jesus. Just like we have extra biblical, non-described, non-mandated fasts today. You've heard of Lent? $100 to the first person that finds where Lent is in the Bible. It's an extra biblical, mandated, if you truly are godly, going without food. You must do it. So these things that Jesus says proves that he is who he claims to be. It shows he's rationally makes sense. We're going to get there. But we got to understand the human heart is the same. We, we gravitate toward, we fall back into default mode of doing extra, higher life, higher principle kind of stuff. And Jesus is going to show us again and again that that's incompatible with him. It's not the way to God. He's the way to God. And with that said, what's so interesting is the real problem is not fasting. What's so interesting is they're saying, why do, why do they eat and drink? Fasting is the problem. And I want you to see, and Jesus is going to show us that fasting isn't the problem. Jesus is the problem. Jesus is the problem. Just like Jesus is the solution. If you think you're the solution and the way to God is according to your tradition, Jesus is the problem. And Jesus in this account is going to make it about more than fasting to show that it's actually about him and to show how he really is the solution. And he's being blunt. He's being bold. I think he's going to use some sarcasm. But it's not because he's a mean guy and he wants to spoil everybody's party. In fact, he's partying. (laughs) He wants to show everyone that he's actually the solution. He's actually the way. So with that in mind, let's look at the response of Jesus. And this is the rational part. It doesn't get much more rational than this. Verse 34 says, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Duh. You know, is what it says in Greek. (laughs) I mean, you're going, (laughs) he's going, hello, duh. Think of the utter, complete nonsense. Think how irrational you are being. If I am the Messiah, the promised, anointed deliverer from God, how irrational, how asinine, how stupid, whatever word you'd like to use, would it be to have everyone... Fasting, which is associated with, with, with being sad and with being burdened. And it doesn't even make sense. Wouldn't make any sense at all. How, how ridiculous that would be. And, and think of it in terms of, since he's using the, the bridegroom, doesn't he say it? So does he say, yeah, the wedding guests. He uses that analogy. I mean, imagine 
you, the last wedding I went to, you know, it's all exciting and wonderful and everybody's dressed up and, and, and just think about the wedding and you've got everyone in their place up front and all the attendants have already come in and the officiating pastor and the groom and then the bride comes in and comes to the front and, and it's meant to be a celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a wedding. You know, you're not going, oh no. I hate weddings. I know. There's none of that going on. And then think about, I mean, we're pretty subdued and stayed. At least at this church. <laughs> but as, 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 as Americans, think first century Middle Eastern kind of culture where emotions are going to be shown a little bit easier. Not only that, think of a funeral where first century it would have been common to actually even hire professional mourners if you have a funeral just to show how bad it is and how sad you are. And can you imagine, here's a wedding festival, festivities, it's grand, it's wonderful, there will be feasting. And we're going to hire professional mourners? That would be stupid. Unthoughtful. Crazy. And Jesus is saying that. The irrationality of unbelief in him doesn't make sense. The the wedding image is even more poignant in light of the fact that the image of, of, of groom and bride representing God and his people is not just a New Testament reality. It is a New Testament reality. Ephesians 5, we know that. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. But that's not new to the New Testament. That's also in the Old Testament and is associated with the coming of Messiah. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2 would be some of that anticipatory kind of image. So think about it. There's precedent for Jesus Messiah coming, and that's the groom coming for the people of God, the bride. And so Jesus isn't just saying, Mike, I need to come up with an illustration here. He's choosing a messianic illustration, a fitting illustration, and how crazy it would be for his followers to be fasting when he's there. It's crazy. In our culture, I think rightfully so, you know, we don't, put the priority on the groom. We put the priority on the bride. But when we're talking about Christ and the redemption of God's people, we are the bride and the priority is not on us. The priority is on the groom. When the groom comes, the groom is here. It means deliverance. It means rescuing. Him giving himself up for us. Oh, no. Oh, I can't eat. I'm so sad. You know, hello, nobody's home. That wouldn't make any sense. It's a time of feasting. It's a time of celebration. Verse 35, then Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. Notice the allusion to, to crucifixion, even used in other places for, for violent taking. A time is coming when the groom, the bridegroom, as it says, will be taken away from them, will be forced away from them, as Jesus will be taken away. He will be crucified. We sang this morning, and we were singing about 
positive things about the cross, and rightfully so. But for Jesus, when he was going there, it wasn't positive. He was taken away to be crucified. Now, because of what, it's, what is done there, we say, yes, we love the cross and the glory of the cross and the beauty of the cross. But we've got to realize here he's got this anticipation of what would come. And when that happens, because they're not living on the side of the cross we're living on, singing happy songs about it, it's time for fasting. It's a crisis. Our deliverer has been crucified. Our Savior has been executed. Jesus is being very, very rational. It doesn't make any sense when I'm here to mourn. A time is coming to mourn when I'm gone. Let me cut through all of the tradition mumbo-jumbo and deal with facts and objectivity. There's a time for fasting. What's key about the change of perspective is that it all turns on Jesus. It all turns on His presence. I want you to make sure you get that. The key to understanding all of this is the key is the presence of Jesus. Everything turns on is Jesus there or is Jesus not there. The key is Jesus. And that's fairly deep. Let's use a deep word. Fairly deep Christology. In Jesus, the perspective is right. When you see Jesus, when you're, you're with Jesus, if you will, He's there. It's not time for fasting. It's a time for rejoicing because He's the one that brings freedom. I like to let that settle in. The groom is what matters here. Boy, if this is anybody other than Jesus, the promised Messiah, the God-man, he's totally out of line. But if he really is the Savior, all of this is so utterly rational. It's amazing. It's impressive. Let's take just a, a few minutes and talk about fasting more generally just because... I realize it's a, an important issue. So we'll, we'll move on in our text in just a moment. But some of you already have all this wired. Um, some of you don't. Some of you are new. Some of you need a reminder. Um, let's talk about fasting. Should we be fasting? Should we not be fasting? Probably different angles that we can look at that from. Um, in light of the presence of Jesus or the absence of Jesus, that's kind of an intriguing one. Is he here or isn't he? Yes and no. I liked what Phil Riken said about this, commentator, longtime pastor at 10th Church in Philadelphia, now president at Wheaton. Uh, Phil Riken basically says yes and no. Not as a compromise, but the biblical reality of Jesus is gone. That's sad. We're waiting for Jesus. We're anticipating. The world is broken. There is difficulty. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Revelation talks about. But at the same time, John 14, he gave us his spirit. We have the spirit of Christ. And so we have another helper. 
So we're not debilitated and it's not, oh, 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 no, awful, awful, awful. We have spirit empowerment. It's the spirit of Christ. There's a sense in which he's with us. We're thrilled about that. There's a sense in which he's not. He will bodily return. We'll see him when we'll be made like him. Seems like it's a call for some good biblical balance. Another question that's related to this is this. Are there mandated fasts for Christians? That's different than saying, should Christians fast? I'm saying, are there mandated fasts in the Bible for Christians? This could be a whole sermon probably. In my opinion, there are no mandated fasts in the Bible for Christians. Christians must fast on this day, this time of year. I don't think you can prove that in the Bible. And we have to be really careful. Because if I tell you, you must fast if you are a Christian. At these times, here are the foods. I get, I'm aligning myself with some bad guys in the Bible. We'll call them false teachers. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, False teachers require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. First Timothy 4, 3. I don't want to be those guys. I don't even want to be in the same zip code. To say to you as a Christian, because you're not a Jew under the law of Moses, keeping the Levitical law. I don't want to be like those guys who say, if you're a Christian, you will go without food at these times. I don't want to be like those guys. You don't want to be like those guys. People who say that are like those guys. I'm not going to do that. And by the way, isn't it interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says you can, you can eat whatever you want. It's created by God. By those who believe and know the truth. The truth about what? The truth about the gospel where Christ came to fulfill the law. It always comes back to Christ. It always hinges back on Christ. If I'm telling you, you got to do these things, got to do these things, got to do these things, you know what? I don't know the truth. I don't know the truth of the gospel. I need you to come alongside of me and say, hello, Christ fulfilled the law. You need to know the truth and you'll stop teaching like that. But I'm revealing to you that I don't really understand the work of Christ. Or you're revealing to me if you're always kind of getting sucked back into do more, try harder, got to go back. I can find it in the Bible. I'm going, yeah, that's right, you can find a lot of things in the Bible, but one thing you must find is that Christ fulfills the law. He is our righteousness. He is our everything. Other passages would be like Acts chapter 10, where all foods are declared clean. And so we have a change because of what Christ has done in fulfilling the law. We're no longer under Leviticus 11 and food laws from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. But then the next question comes, and it's the final question regarding this, and that is, but should Christians fast? Should Christians do that second kind where there's circumstances that are severe? It seems that there, is exa- there are examples of that. It's not a mandated fast. But because of circumstances, you find yourself consumed with the circumstance, consumed with seeking the forgiveness of God, seeking, uh, consumed with seeking wisdom from God. 
We see it at least a couple of times in the book of Acts. 13, 14, 15, right in there off the top of my head. Jesus talks about when you fast. He didn't give a prescribed fast then. And so maybe you should fast, but I won't tell you when. And by the way, you shouldn't tell me when. By the way, according to Matthew 6, you shouldn't tell us when you're doing it. Not to mention putting something on your head. It's a secret. Keep looking on the outside like everything's fine. Because you're not drawing attention to yourself like those who make up fasts, like the Pharisees. Well, that might raise more questions than it answers. I'm not sure. But it does always come back to how you view Christ. Did he or didn't he? Is he or isn't he? And the big rub here was with the extra biblical, higher life. We live by higher standards, so we make new laws kind of thing. And Jesus says, out of line. Totally out of line. And you could say, man, he's so mean for doing that. Or you could say, isn't he kind and gracious? What a great savior. He takes the bondage that we're in by extra biblical traditions and he tears the shackles off so we're free to know God as he really is so we can see him for who he really is. That's good news. That's what that is. Well, with that in mind, he gives some illustrations. He's shown himself to be utterly rational, reasonable, And now he gives some illustrations about himself. Verse 36 says, He also told them a parable. No one. (laughs) Now, I'm, I'm not reading too much into this. Based upon who he's talking to, what they're believing, that's like saying, no one in their right mind. No one who is sane. No one who's ever read the Bible with any kind of credibility before. I mean, he's given them a black eye here. No one, he says tears a piece from a new garment, so you're going to get a, new, a brand new shirt and you're going to tear a piece off of it, and puts it on the, an old garment, if he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And elsewhere, we would have him teach us that actually you wreck the old too, because when you put the new piece of cloth that you ruined your new shirt by taking off, you tore it up, you put it on the old, and then you wash it, And it shrinks, it tears the old, and so now you've ruined your new, you've ruined your old, and he's saying, no one in their right mind does that. And they could have all said, that's right, that would be totally stupid. He's making a point about himself. He's making a point about himself because he's central to everything, because he is the, as we'll see later at the end of the gospel account, the mediator of the new covenant. He's making a point. I didn't come here to assist Judaism. Not to mention, I didn't come here to assist your perverted version of Judaism. I didn't come here to make other religions better. I came here as the fulfillment of the promise of God throughout the Old Testament. And it's all about me, not me helping, but it's all about me. I'm central in everything, is what he's saying. As Colossians 1.18 says, he's preeminent in everything. He's the new one. He's central. 
Luke 4, 21. Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is central to the whole thing. It's about him, his preeminence. And the reason they're confused about Jesus is because they don't see him for who he is. How do you see Jesus? He's the assistant. He's the life coach. He's the helper. He's the one to make your life what you want it to be. To fix your other religion. To help you. Because two religions are better than one, as one of my professors told me once. He said, it's about me. It's all about me. You'll ruin paganism and you'll ruin Christianity when you try to mix them. It's kind of a weird way to look at it if you follow the illustration. He's the supreme one. Everything else is types and shadows. It's about his glory. It's about his honor, not the other way around. Then he gives another illustration that's similar in verse 37. And no one, once again, no one, that's an insult to these guys. But false shepherds should be insulted, apparently. Uh, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Not the illustration we would use. We can certainly understand. You know, if you if not altogether different from the, the wine things that people wear on the ski slopes or they used to, you know, shaped like a horn, leather thing. Probably bigger and not as nice, not with plastic valves. But the neck of the sheep or the neck of the goat would be used for the neck of the wineskin. And it would be treated and it would be cured appropriately and cleaned. And what you would do with a new wineskin is you'd pour the new wine and as it ferments... There's expandability, there's changeability, and so everything's fine. But if you take the old wineskin, maybe your favorite one, maybe it's tried and true to you, maybe it's been handed down from generation to generation. It's your traditional wineskin. My grandfather gave me this wineskin back in the old country. I don't know, you get the idea. And you put the new wine in there and it ferments and it changes and it expands. It's going to ruin the old wine skin and it's going to ruin the wine because it's going to be wasted. Just an illustration. But he's making the point, don't try to take me, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who is the fulfillment, the one who is the son, and somehow use me to fix the old to help the old, or even to serve the old, not to mention to complement your perversion of the old, which is what the Pharisees had. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. It's impossible. And this is something, even like in the book of Acts, the church has struggled with, even from early on. How, How does old and new relate, not to mention perverted versions of the old, How does Jesus fit into all of this? This is at least one text to help us to understand, as well as other texts, that it's all in anticipation of him. He's not complimenting it. He is actually center stage. He's preeminent. He's everything. And he's the star of the show. Don't try to cram him back in. This is a problem. It's a problem today. 
How do we understand the Old and the New? How do we understand Old Testament and New Testament? What role uh, uh, do they play in each other's lives, so to speak? And we can make errors. Uh, In the second century, a guy named Marcion, or Marcion, if you would like. Marcion said, Old Testament God, different from New Testament God. Heard that before? (laughs) Nothing new. Old Testament God, kind of, you know, hardcore, law-giving kind of God. Then comes Jesus, and he's nicer kind of idea. The new, kinder, gentler Moses, who gives a law that's not quite so tough to follow kind of deal. Marcion really liked Paul, at least portions of Paul. Really didn't like those other disciples because they were Jewish. and They sounded too Old Testament-ish. Never mind the fact Paul was Jewish. But anyway... We still struggle sometimes with kind of a Marcion kind of idea. Jesus isn't trying to get us to be Marcion here by saying, don't mix old and new. Because the other error ends up being absolute continuity, absolutely the same, no difference whatsoever. We've got to know there's old covenant. The Bible calls it that for a reason because there is going to be a new covenant in my blood. Jesus is center stage. He's different. He's the new wine. Don't jam me back into the old wineskins. I'm it. Today in your hearing, the scripture has been fulfilled as he's already said in Luke's account. Everything else, as the book of Hebrews would have us to know, has been types and shadows. They've been good. They've been right. But they've been in anticipation of me. As Hebrews 1 would say, that God has spoken in many different ways through the prophets. But in these last days, these culminating days, these these grand days, the days we've all been waiting for, He's spoken to us through His Son. It all hinges on Him. It all hinges on Him. We need to know that. We need to remember that. Radically different, radically new. Jesus is not the kinder, gentler Moses. Think about this for a second. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses so that we would trust in Him, Jesus, for our right standing before God, as opposed to trusting in ourselves. If Jesus is the new, kinder, gentler Moses, well, Moses gave the law from God, keep it or else. And then Jesus just gives a nicer, easier version, keep it or else. And we just keep it. It's a total perversion of who Jesus is. It's a total misread of the whole Bible. Guess what? Law of God is law of God. Jesus came to keep and fulfill the law of God so we're no longer trusting in anything, anyone other than Him. And so He is preeminent. He is central. He is key. He's the new wine, if you will. I don't know about you, but that excites me. I'm like, that's good and right and it makes sense and it cuts through all of the quote-unquote higher law principles, whatever. You know, it's like trust in Christ, only in Him. It's glorious. It's grand. Makes me want to feast and party and have some joy. 
But right now, all of you are thinking more in terms of uh, Jesus' bodily not here, and that's why you're so sober-faced, right? You're being biblical, too. And I just happen to, at the time, be thinking about how I have the Spirit of Christ, and I'm, ex- I'm just being a little silly. But It all turns on Him. It all hinges on Him. He's central to the whole thing, and that's not irrational. It's actually rational. Verse 39 then says, our last verse here, And no one after drinking old wine desires new. No one seems to be an overstatement, but no one, as far as the people he's talking to, these Pharisees, no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. And I said it that way on purpose because I think that's meant to be how we understand it. He's, he's, he's saying, this is how you guys talk. You guys have been drinking so long from the sewer that when you have fresh water at your fingertips, you go, oh, I kind of like the old. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. My dad gave me this and my granddad did the same thing. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I'll just keep drinking sewer water. And Jesus is going, you, you're so stupid. You're, you're so dense in the head. This, this, this old is good. Now, realize that when he's talking about drinking old wine, he's not talking about vintage. Okay? I mean, some of you are having a hard time because you have like this, this uh, vino hermeneutic, and you're going, whoa, that's not what I learned in my wine tasting class. And, um, <laughs> no one after drinking old wine, as in stale wine. As in, we, we, we're waiting for the new harvest. Just like with the water, what they would do is they would have to have their water just sit in the cistern. And you're just waiting for the rains. You're waiting for the rains to come to fill the cisterns back up so you can enjoy some fresh water. Oh, how good this is. Well, the, the, the old wine, he's not talking vintage. He's talking, it's the stuff that's not tasting so good anymore. The new wine is fresh. Oh, just wonderful, like fresh water. Sometimes associated in the Bible elsewhere with joy, with refreshment, like Psalm 4, verse 7. He's mocking here is what he's doing. It's no wonder you don't see me for who I am. And trust me, you're satisfied with sewer water. Now, I may have sounded like I was making fun of older people. But this sometimes is true of younger people too. When we're ignorant and prideful, doesn't matter if you're young or old. I just like it the old way. Young people can do that too. I'm just going to do what I, I've experienced before. And what I've experienced before is what's right. On a lighter note, I remember one time taking a group of students um, from Nebraska, and let's overcharacterize and make fun of ourselves for a minute. Um, I took a group of students from Nebraska, you know, from the sticks, from the woods, because we all live in the sticks, right? As is stereotypical. Took them to the big city. Some of you in this room actually were with me. We went to Chicago. And short-term missions kind of thing. One of the things we were going to do in the big city of Chicago is we were going to go to a nice restaurant that we don't have in Nebraska. You know, maybe we'd call it a gourmet restaurant. I remember some of the students, man, they wouldn't have nothing to do with it. 
they were like, we never heard of that. We don't like that. We want Burger King. We know what's good. We know what's right. Burger King. Yeah, sewer water. Tastes pretty good, huh? We're going to go to a gourmet restaurant. You're going, to, you're going to experience things on your taste buds you've never experienced before. I don't care what your mom and dad have been telling you, you know? But ignorance and pride are deadly. They're deadly when it comes to the spiritual realm of things and viewing Jesus the right way. These folks are ignorant and they are prideful and ignorance and pride when it comes to Jesus provide a, an awful cocktail. It's not rational, but it is powerful. Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. I'm so glad that Jesus comes just breaking in gloriously, compassionately, powerfully, helping us to understand who he really is. The new wine. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, he's going to say that the giving of his blood, the giving of himself establishes the new covenant. This is in anticipation of him being the one who brings the new covenant. And oh, by the way, lest we be Marcion, the Old Testament talked about the new covenant. By the way, that's even a built-in reminder that the Old Testament even is predicting its own obsoleteness. Built in the old. The, the old has, has a born-on date. Born-on dating, you know, used before this date. There's a, there's a coming day when the new covenant will come. And if there's a new covenant, then that brings an end to the old covenant. And Jesus is going to say, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm it. I'm it. It's, it's, it's all about me. As Hebrews will say, he's the mediator of the new covenant, which brings forgiveness to you, which brings perfect atonement, never to be repeated again. And those were all types and shadows. He's the one. He is absolutely the one. Hebrews 9, 15. And so this morning, as we celebrate communion, I'm just going to remind you that it's a reminder that Jesus is the new wine New covenant, everything else was anticipating him so that we would have joy in him, mixed with some longings in the here and now, but we're even proclaiming the Lord's death through the communion celebration until he comes. So we're waiting expectantly so that he could bring to realization all that he's already secured in his earthly work. So have it be a time where you're remembering and realizing that the joy of the Lord is our strength and it comes through Him and we're here to celebrate that and to rest in Him and He sets you free from the bondage of tradition and He sets you free from ignorance and He sets you free from the pride and He is a great and gracious Savior worthy of your dependence and mine. And our Father, we're glad that you chose to send your Son. The only thing that ever cost you anything. That you loved us when we were not lovely. And wonderfully and graciously 
sent your son here so that he might do all things right as our representative, as our great Savior, so that he might bear the burden, so that he might experience your judgment, even though he didn't deserve it, so that he might rise again from the dead. And we're grateful that he has ascended, and we're grateful that he's returning, and we're grateful that he gave us this new covenant celebration where we, with joy, remember what he's done for us. May we never tire of finding joy in this great reality. We pray in Jesus' name.